Thanks, guys. If you brought a Bible, please open with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. As we continue plowing through what is without a doubt the theological high point and center of this entire book. Revelation 5, let's give our attention again to the reading of God's Word. Once again, the prose just doesn't get, it just doesn't get any higher than this in Scripture. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word for us tonight. In the first century, in the weeks prior to his death, in a Roman Colosseum, by being mauled by lions, Ignatius of Antioch wrote this in a letter. Think about this. Mauling to death by lions. He says this. He says, may I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. I pray that they would be found eager to rush at me. And I will also entice them to devour me speedily and not deal with me as some whom out of fear they have not touched. If they are unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. Pardon me, I know what is to my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of things visible or invisible prevent me from attaining Jesus Christ 
Let fire and the cross, let wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocation of bones, let cutting off of limbs, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all of the evil torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Now look, preacher types like myself would typically use a quote like that for inspirational purposes, right? Look at this guy's faith. Isn't that amazing? But I want tonight to take a different tack on it, a little more of a scientific approach, if you will. How do you account for a man talking in that way? And I mean this honestly. In your most honest moment, how do you account for someone talking that way? I think there's a couple of options. Some of you from the outside looking in would say, well, he, he was a religious fanatic. These are people who just are sort of wired this way. We don't know why they sort of grow up into that way, but they just act that way. You might say, secondly, that he's mentally insane. No one who invites you know, the tearing of their limbs and the dislocation of their bones. Nobody asks for that. There's something wrong with the man. You might be saying thirdly, though, that maybe it's just because he was primitive. You know, back in those days, they were, they were superstitious like that. But look, I, I want to challenge us tonight to set aside, by way of illustration, our historical condescension at people from these 2,000 years ago to listen to the justification that the man himself offers. In other words, rather than sort of uh, playing armchair psychiatrist from 2,000 years past, I want you to listen to him. Did you catch what he said there in the middle? He said, pardon me, I know what is to my benefit. Do you hear his reasoning? What he's saying is, is I am perfectly sane because I have weighed the options. On the one hand, I have set my life, my health, my physical prosperity. On the other hand, I have set attaining Christ. And I simply find the latter, listen, to be to my benefit. Look, again, you can think that this guy is insane if you'd like, but you can still hear what he's saying. What would make a Christian, and surely by this time you've, you've wondered this, what would make a Christian, what is it about this idea of the man, Jesus Christ, that would cause people to say things like that? Because he's one of thousands. Thousands of people, since that man showed up, began to talk the way this man did. And again, separating yourself from the Christianized South, if that's where you're from, or perhaps from some other maybe skeptical part of the country. I don't know. Separate yourself from that moment to simply be honest with the question, why would someone find something in Jesus Christ that would allow them to say things like that? D.A. Carson, for whom I'm extraordinarily in debt to a lot of the material that we'll be looking at tonight, says that chapter 4 is to chapter 5 what a setting is for a drama. Last night we set the backdrop, as it were, the props, the scenery. But what comes to us in chapter 5 is what the story is about. And in the end, what the story is about is simply this, is that Jesus Christ alone is the answer to the most fundamental questions of human existence. 
It's my proposition tonight that I have to demonstrate to you. That in the end, Jesus Christ is ultimately the only answer to the problem of three things that we're going to look at. We're going to find that Jesus Christ is the answer to the problem of history. Secondly, we'll see that he is the answer to the problem of redemption. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see that Jesus is the answer to the problem of joy. History, redemption, and joy. Let's jump into it there in the first one. Jesus solves, according to John here, the problem of human history. Look, in order to unpack this, we have to understand exactly what this scroll is about. Without question, that's the central sort of piece of furniture in chapter 5. It's a unique scroll, John tells us, because it's written on both sides. An ancient scroll made out of the little papyrus strips would have been smooth on one side where the sort of uh, glue was placed, but the other side would be bumpy where the reeds sort of were most exposed. You only wrote on both sides, we know from history, when everything in a document needed to be kept in one place. It has on it seven seals, again, seven being the number of perfection, meaning that what is contained within this scroll is of absolute total uh, uh, importance. It is absolutely vital. In the the olden times, they would seal scrolls as they were rolled up with little globs of wax so that a king could use his signet ring to identify its authenticity. This one has seven, so it means it's the ultimate final word of what needs to be said about something. And to be honest with you, you might puzzle yourself over what the scroll meant until you hear what the strong angel has to say. Because the angel shows up and says, is there anyone who is worthy to unwrap this scroll? And really, without explanation, John begins to cry. And I remember as a child reading this passage, thinking to myself, you know, that John guy is awfully curious. I mean, here he is bawling over the fact that they're they're not going to open this scroll for him. Bear with me, John. I'm sure they'll get to what's inside it. Why are you so upset? It's not curiosity. What Don Carson says about this is is what comes in the scroll must be God's pronouncement about how to make sense of human history. The scroll is the accounting, the way in which God will right all of the wrongs that are committed against humanity and in the end put an end to the problem that exists for every single person if you simply live long enough. And my guess is that many of you have already. What age do you have to be before this becomes apparent to you? That life is tragic. It is unavoidably tragic. It was a number of years ago, and I'll say this. I want to step into this with all due respect to our brothers and sisters from Virginia Tech. And if you are very close to individuals involved in this, I offer you, I don't take this lightly. But it's been five years now since Cho marched onto the campus at Virginia Tech, gunned down some 32 some odd people, wounded another 25 before turning the gun on himself. Now you probably would have been late junior high or high school when that whole thing came down. But do you remember what that was like? Do you remember hearing the news reports and trying to make sense of this? I was at the University of Mississippi during that time, and you have to understand that when When that happened, suddenly every college student in the country felt deeply unsafe because the place that they thought was the most secure, how innocuous, a college classroom, was suddenly an extraordinarily threatening place. 
But can you remember, or at least even relate in a, at a distance, at the pit that forms in the stomach at looking at events like that? Because there was kind of widespread panic and fear that swept across the campuses, we decided at the University of Mississippi to hold uh, something of a memorial service as an act of goodwill towards our brothers and sisters at Virginia Tech. And so we gathered there in our small little chapel in the center of campus to sort of try to comfort one another. We asked to speak for this service a man who was an engineering professor who happened to teach for some 10 years prior at Virginia Tech. And he got up and sort of shared some of his remembrances about how kind the people were, how much he enjoyed his time there, and how nice Blacksburg was. But at one point during his message, he looked up and said, Look, I realize that there's probably some of you out there that are asking the question, why? He said, but you know something? There is no answer to the question, why? The man had a mental disease. What are you going to do? And then he kind of went on saying something else. I was sitting on the back row of this service, and I thought to myself, you have got to be kidding me. Please, nothing against an engineering major, but don't quit your day job. The man had a mental disease? What are you going to do? Do you honestly see that as being an answer? Will you really look into the faces of those family members who lost their loved ones and simply say to them, the man had a mental disease. What are you going to do? How glib. How woefully inadequate. And the reason why that event, now five years old, is so pressing is because you begin to realize that with every passing year, you realize that almost every single day, the emotional equivalent of a Virginia Tech massacre happens. Every single day. Listen to me, y'all. Somewhere in the world today, a mother just miscarried a child. Somewhere in the world, a father of small children just received a cancer diagnosis. Somewhere in this globe today, an act of God took innocent lives. My friends, when you begin to take a step back and look at human history, there will be a part of you that will well up and say, who could possibly make sense of what I see around me? Your generation is abandoning religion in all of its forms in record numbers. And the surveys, if they are to be believed, will say that the number one reason why you are leaving is because of this problem. The internet has allowed us a front row seat to everything. And you're reasoning in your minds, if there is that out there, then nothing makes sense. There is a problem with human history. Because it looks like there is no one at the wheel when I see the events of my life go as out of control as they are. Has that touched you yet? Come on, y'all. There are too many stories in this room for someone to not be able to stand up and say, I know exactly what you're talking about. This topic is so huge, we're going to continue to talk about it tomorrow, and I just wanted to introduce it. But notice what the text says. 
John, as he begins to weep, he's got the good sense to weep over the fact that history makes no sense, is approached by an elder who says, weep no more. Because in the end, there is a lion that's coming. There is a lion that is coming to roar in great strength. And that strength, however you want to sum it up, is going to be summed up in this way. He is going to right every wrong. The promise of Revelation chapter 5 is that in the end, no one gets away with anything. That there is one coming at the end of all human history who will finally, because of the infiniteness of his own mind, be able to sort through the rights and the wrongs of human history. He will bury down to the deep parts of motives. He will look and find out exactly what was the cause of all human suffering, whether on a grand scale like we had at Virginia Tech, or whether we have it on the small scale in the small quiet hours of a dorm room where someone weeps over a broken heart. There is a lion And every Christian became convinced that that was the solution to human history. Secondly, though, that creates another problem. If Jesus is the lion that solves the problem of human history, there is a second problem, and it is a problem of redemption. Because you are not paying attention to your own life if you do not realize that if the one who is coming to make all wrongs right is going to exact that kind of particular justice. What then is going to keep me and you from being swept away with that tide? In other words, if there is a lion, eventually there may not be any of us that has any hope. But look at the text. After he looks and he sees, instead of seeing a lion, he actually sees a lamb. And it's a lamb with its throat cut. The lamb has ten horns. A horn in the Old Testament is always a symbol for a king. So he is a complete fullness of king. In other words, he is the king of all kings. And because there are seven of them, seven of his eyes, he is the perfect king. Not only that, his seven eyes are to show that he's in possession, it says, of the seven spirits. The text tells us that's a picture of the perfection of the spirit of God. By the way, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 is probably one of the most strong, the strongest Trinitarian verse in the Bible. The Father on the throne, the Son and the Lamb, and the Spirit coming forth at the same time. And suddenly people grow extraordinarily joyful. All of heaven begins to erupt in praise like you don't see in anywhere else in the Bible. Why? Well, almost to honor the fact that this last year he passed away... I wanted to sort of introduce you to a topic that was brought up the first time I crossed it by John R.W. Stott in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, which you must read if you're going to take Christianity seriously. In that book, John Stott explains that when you look at human forgiveness, God has a problem. And he puts it in quotes. Because on the one hand, you have a God who is a lion of justice. He is a law-keeping God who must, under every circumstance, punish wherever there was wrongdoing. He would cease to be just if he took humankind's wrongdoing and swept it under the carpet. He cannot simply turn his back on it and still be what he claims to be. And yet, at the same time, you have a God who confesses in numerous places that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
That is, in as much as we have a God who is committed to being a, a God of law and of justice, we have a God who is equally committed to being loving and, and joyful with his people. But the question becomes this, how can you have God keeping both commitments? You see, if God looks and is committed to his law as opposed to his love, nobody here survives. Nobody makes it. But if you have him committed to his love over and against his law, then he ceases to be God because he's no longer just. My friends, this is, according to the Christian worldview, the fundamental motivating conflict inside every soul. How can I have a world where there is law and there is love at the same time? Horatius Bonner, the old Scottish Puritan, put it this way. Law and love must be reconciled. The one cannot give way to the other. Both must stand or else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. My friends, do you now see the genius, though, of why it is that on the cross, the uniqueness of Christianity is found 100% on the cross because there we see Jesus being both lion in that place. He is fully upholding the law of God, receiving in himself the due punishment, not just for himself, but because the Father was willing to make him a representative of us. He bears all of our wrongdoing as well. And his father kills him for it. He delivers a death sentence for him. But in that very self-same act, this is huge, he does the most loving thing he can possibly do. Because he is acting as a substitute, it means, therefore, that there is no longer justice to be poured out on those who know the Lamb. Only in the cross do you have the conflict for every fundamental human problem. The cross solves the problem of redemption. Notice we sing in verse, in verse 9, For you were slain. I'll be honest with you, while I, while I was standing over here tonight, I, I tried to have an existential moment of what it must be like for someone to walk in and be like, do you realize what we just sang tonight? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. Blood. And, and talk about how precious is the flow it's almost, it sounds like something out of a horror movie. Who rejoices in the flow of blood? How absurd. But understand something. Every Christian has rejoiced in it for this reason. And I, I, I struggled for a year since they asked me to do this for the best way to illustrate this. And this is as good as I can do. It's as much as I've got. From your perspective, even if you're on the outside of Christianity, was the cross of Jesus the worst thing that could have happened in human history? Or was it the best thing that happened in human history? I want you, with as best as you're able to do, to do the calculus, spiritually speaking. From the Christian worldview, was the cross the worst thing that ever happened? Or was it the best thing that ever happened? Some of you are saying to yourself, that's a very interesting question. Because it has to be both, does it not? You have to look and say, the Son of God comes and is executed by his own people. That's horrible. Who could imagine such an act? That's a terrible thing to happen. And yet, for those of you who understand what it means by Christ being our substitute, you would look and say, and yet, the cross is the very thing that's the best thing that could have ever happened to us. 
And both of them are true at the same time. My friends, this is the Christian approach to suffering that is unmatched in any other world religion. Every other world religion will come to you and say, your suffering, on the one hand, is probably your fault. You've done something wrong. Moralistic religions will basically put you back on a treadmill to do enough to get the gods in your favor. Other world religions will look at you and say, your pain and your suffering is an illusion. Rise above it. Achieve a higher state of mind. But only in Christianity do you have the ultimate transformation of your pain to where you can look back and say, was my parents' divorce the worst thing that's ever happened to me? Or was it the best thing that ever happened to me? My guess is for those of you that know Christ tonight, you would look and say, I get it. It was both. There are some of you that lay your head down on a pillow at night and there's not a night that goes by where you don't think, I wish my parents would get back together. But there's also another part of you that looks and says, but God met me in the midst of that pain and I would never know him the way in which I do now were it not for going through it. Only a Christian can say that. Because only a Christian has an event 2,000 years ago in his personal history that says that can finally show that I don't have to deny my uh, suffering. I don't have to feel guilty about my suffering. I don't have to sort of rise above it. I can own it for what it is. It breaks my heart. But at the same time, rejoice because three days later, he rose again from the dead and he conquered it all. And because he did that, he solved my third problem. <laughs> Jesus solves the problem of history. He solves, secondly, the problem of redemption. But thirdly, he solves the problem of joy. And I'll finish with this. Verses 11 through 14 are as rapturous as it gets in the Scripture. C.S. Lewis says in his wonderful little book on the reflections on the Psalms, that when he would go to church, he would always be kind of weirded out by the Psalms that would talk about how much people wanted to go and praise the Lord. Let us go. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And Lewis is like, I'm not very glad because that guy sings off key and she's an idiot. Um, I'm not feeling it here. And what Lewis suddenly realized is the more that he talked about his own, the more that he thought about his own pleasure, the more he realized that the thing that there is to enjoy about something is most often in the talking about it. Have you ever noticed this? 90% of the fun of the thing is in the talking about the thing. Um, I do not fancy myself a golfer, but every now and then I will go out and play golf. Um, I qualify that because it was a number of years ago when I was standing on the number two hole at Galloway Golf Course down in right in midtown Memphis, and I leaned back and I sculled an eight iron at about 145 yards, skimmed it right across the front, it hit some little flat part on the front of the green, popped straight up in the air, and bounced once before it dropped right into the hole for my very first hole in one. Yes, thank you, of course. Now, oh, sure. Sure, I feel your patronization. <clears throat> now here's the deal. There was much joy at that moment, but any golfer will tell you that the good news of the ball going in the hole was completely eclipsed by the good news that I had not chosen to play alone that day. <laughs> there was a witness, right? Because, I mean, that's the greatest fear of a golfer is you suddenly like, I'll just squeeze in nine by myself. And suddenly you ace one and nobody will believe you. 
But thank goodness for Carrie Lowe, standing right beside me, who had to endure my praise. <laughs> As I praise the golf gods for granting me such favor. Look, my friends, this is the point. In the halls of heaven, there echo people who have found joy. And part of the enjoyment is in the praise. Last night we said that worship is what happens in you when you find something that you value. Praise is what comes out of your mouth when you worship that thing. Worship and praise. And by the way, if you'll notice, like we said last night, you're always doing this. Can I tell you how I've been evangelized or how I was evangelized many years ago when people began to tell me Arrested Development is the most extraordinary comedy ever on television. You must watch it. And there's a movie coming out, and they're making a season four, and we all rejoiced. There is joy on the other side of heaven. Look, y'all, this is the point. There has to be joy on the other side, because there's a certain age in which you get, and I'm beginning to think it's my 40s. My wife and I have been faced with a rather difficult experience of the last few months, and that is in realizing that our parents are aging. All four of our parents are now in their 70s. And uh, both of our fathers are experiencing bad health. And we're suddenly looking and realizing that death is the great equalizer. I know we know that in theory. I know we have an idea about that. But there's something a little more vivid when it comes at home. But you do realize that if death is what it is, it is the cosmic killjoy. As depressing as it is, there's a time in which when you, even in marriage, and I'll be honest with you, I I have one of the happiest marriages that I know of. I'm extraordinarily fulfilled and happy in my marriage. But here's the crazy thing. Ginger and I have come to that moment where we suddenly realize, you know what? It really doesn't matter what happens. Barring some fiery car crash over a cliff or something where we die instantly, we are going to have to say goodbye to one another. It doesn't matter how much joy we have. It doesn't matter how much delight I get when I look into the eyes of my children. If death is what it is, then it is the cosmic killjoy. Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings, at least in the book, when he wakes up in the fields of Athelion, looks up at Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Shall everything sad come untrue? What will ring throughout the halls of heaven is the is the never-ending answer to that question, which is yes, that there's something better. And because that is better, it transforms you in the now, and it gives me the strength to face suffering. Again, we'll talk about that more tomorrow night, but let me close with this one last illustration. A number of years ago, I had a student who, who insulted me. I won't go into the details of it all, but there was a certain experience where we were trying... We were trying to get sort of creative and set one of this girl's sorority sister friends up with one of our friends, and there was like an eight to nine year difference between the two. Never mind the distance there, and it kind of creeped her out, and never mind. It's a story I'm going to get into. But at one point, this student was sitting across me, and she was like, Les, you need to lay off on trying to set so-and-so up with your friend, because that's just creepy. There's eight or nine years apart. And I looked at her, and I was like, you need to get over it, okay? Um, look, once you get out of college, nobody cares how old you are. Who cares about age differences? And at that moment, she, she, she twisted her face into an expression of utter disgust. She said, but, but, but Les, that would be like somebody like me being with someone like you. <laughs> really? How horrible. 
Now, here's the crazy thing. You take that event and allow that to happen to me when I was in junior high, I would not have survived. You would have buried me in a shoebox after that kind of comment. But you know what's funny? It didn't make a dent. It really didn't. I can say without a motive. I could could share it with 450 some odd people. Do you want to know why? Because Ginger was at home. Because there was one who so approved of me that it neutralized the disapproval of the world. My friend, Revelation chapter 5 comes along and says, what if there was the approval of one who is both lion and lamb, who can solve the problem of your own human history and give you in result a joy that will never cease to be interesting and fun to talk about through the rest of eternity? Could there be such a thing? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you lead us into that very thing, to a vision of that as it echoes through our minds, the voice of these people building word upon word about power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Would you flood our hearts with that, with a unique vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that in seeing him, he might neutralize all other disappointments in life, Lord, I don't know where these people have been, but I know where I've been, and I've seen things that are too sad to talk about. And so we will, in whatever way it means, cling to you, especially, Father, for the soul who perhaps tonight is uncovering this for the first time. We pray that you would show yourself to them as strong and as a source of all joy. If you would do so, we would be grateful, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.